the calling of the church. That's what we studied in Ephesians 1 through 3, and today in chapter 4, Dr. J. Vernon McGee says that we'll study the conduct of the church. Welcome to Through the Bible. I'm Steve Schwetz, and I'm so grateful that you're with us for our continuing journey through God's entire Word. Now, in just a few moments, we'll hear some very practical teaching for us, including seven characteristics of one who is worthy to walk as a believer of Jesus Christ. Do you have all those? Well, we'll find out. So as you find your seat on the Bible bus, let's catch up with our world prayer team. Greg Harris, our president, is here to share where we're going this week. Yeah, the world prayer team, which if you're not a member, is a group of thousands of people that have said, I'll take a minute or two to pray for a different country every day of the week all around the, the year. And we go all the way around the world in a year. So Yeah, and you'll hear great testimonies of how God is moving in people's lives, and it will invigorate your prayer life. It will. And and you heard that from Steve Schwetz, a charter member of the yes. World Prayer Team. Now, this week, uh, we are traveling through Eastern Africa. We're going to be in countries like Malawi, Burundi, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and today, and we're going to be talking today about the country of Somalia. Now, you may need to pull out Google Maps and find out where that is. It's in the northeastern quadrant of the African continent, and it's a pretty tough place to be a Christian, isn't it? It certainly is. Um, Islam plays a major part in that part of the world, um, and there's primarily Sunni Muslim in, in Somalia, I believe. Yes, that's right. Um, but very fundamental those of you that know anything about Islam and Sharia law and the brutality towards women, towards other religions, Christianity following into that category, causes what Christian believers are there in Somalia to really be low-key house churches that are are very quiet, but God. Yeah. There are about 4,000 believers uh, that worship in house churches just to stay under the radar and, yeah. and to try to avoid the persecution. But but that persecution, as we've seen all over the world, often heightens the boldness of the believers. And, yeah. and we actually get some wonderful responses from our Somali broadcasts. Yeah, one of the things, I, and I'm not a real fan, full disclosure myself, on social media, yes. but social media does have an effective role around the world in these difficult situations. And this is an yep. example. Here's a testimony from our Somali team. We see new names reacting in positive to our social media programs. This encourages as we see Somalia youth learning the Bible. It is our hope in the future they can preach and share the gospel with them on social media. We hope to pray and see them enhancing their biblical literacy that can help them in their walk with God. Yeah, and that's powerful. And I I know, Steve, sometimes when we read them, the grammar isn't exactly what we're used to. But that that actually highlights the authenticity that we're, we're dealing with people that English is not their first language, but boy, their heart is right there with us. And that's exciting. Now, we also do get some direct responses. And here's one I just love. I am a Muslim. I love the the letters that begin that way. Absolutely. And some portions of the Bible are hard to understand by those who are not familiar with the word of God. I appreciate your teaching, which explains it well. Hmm. Boy, do you think that person is going to end up being a, a believer in Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. And also the need, Greg, you and I were talking about this at lunch, in, in particularly in Islamic countries, the need to have follow-up. And it's not just follow-up, um, you know, to get them plugged into a local church or get them material, but it's answering their questions. Yes. Um, it, yes. Uh, Muslims have such interesting questions, especially around the world. And for our partners to be addressing that is just, is an important thing. And Greg, we're out of time. <laughs> I know. So uh, why don't you go ahead and pray for us and we'll begin. Father, thank you that you let us bring the word of God into all different places, some hard, some very receptive. 
We pray that your name would be glorified as we bring your word to the whole world. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's head together into Ephesians 4 on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Now we have come today to a new section in the epistle to the Ephesians, the conduct of the church. The first three chapters, we saw the calling of the church, the vocation, the vocalization of the church. Now we have here the vocation of the believer, the heavenly calling, and now the earthly walk of the believer. And not the worldly walk, but the earthly walk. They're walking here on this earth. And the church is seated yonder in the heavenlies in Christ. He is the head of the body. And he's seated at God's right hand. But the church is to walk down here in this world, as we shall see. Now the church here is called a new man. The church now has been made new, and it's a new man to walk. And now we come to the practical side of this. Now in this last section... We shall consider the conduct, the confession, and the conflict of the church. The church here is a new man, and the church will be a bride. And the church is a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now we've been on the mountain peak of transfiguration in the first section. And probably the highest spiritual point in the New Testament is in these last three chapters And that's the reason we've spent so much time on the mount. But in this last division, now we descend to the plane of living, right down where the rubber meets the road. And now we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty, where we confront a demon-possessed world and a skeptical mob. Are we able to translate the truths of the mountaintop into shoe leather? Are we able to stand and walk through the world? Our Lord said that we are in the world, but not of the world. Now, it's been stated that Ephesians occupies the same position theologically as Joshua does in the Old Testament. And now we come to the position where this truth is manifest. Joshua, you remember, entered the land of promise. He led the children of Israel over the Jordan. That speaks of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Brought them into the promised land. That's where you and I live today, or at least where we should be living today, in resurrection territory. And Joshua brought them into the land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and also to Moses. And it was his by right of promise. But he had to appropriate it by taking possession. And possession is the great word in Joshua. And now we've come to that word here. Before the first three chapters, it's position, position, position. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. God's made them over to us. But are we walking down here in possession of them? And the children of Israel promised the promised land. But to them, it was a never-never land because they had up to this point never entered it. Now they've entered it. And they're to enter it for their enjoyment and blessing, blessing to others. Although enemies and other obstacles stood in the way, Joshua had to overcome and occupy. And he was told, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that's yours. Now, all of it's yours. 
but you're not going to enjoy only that which you lay hold of. The believer is privileged today now to move in and occupy the all-spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, the unsearchable riches in Christ. But they must be searched out with the spiritual Geiger counter, which is the Word of God. Now, we have seen glorious declarations. Henceforth, there'll be commands for those who have been called to such an exalted place, a way of life is demanded, which is commensurate with the calling. So many people today dwell on the first part of Ephesians. They become rather super-duper saints, very spiritual. I remember when I first came to Southern California, there was a family in the church. That is, they attended. They were not members. And in fact, rather active and very lovely people. And I asked them one day, the man and his wife, why they didn't join. And they looked up toward the ceiling and said, we're members of the invisible church, and fluttered their eyelids. Well, I looked up toward the ceiling. I didn't see that invisible church. And of course, the reason I didn't see it, it was invisible. Now, I found out that a lot of these folk who are members of the invisible church, they're really invisible. They're invisible on Sunday night, and they're invisible on Wednesday night. In fact, they're invisible when you need somebody, by the way. But the invisible church is to make itself visible down here in the local assembly, and the individuals down here are to walk that way. Now we've come to the practical side, the earthly conduct of the church, the vocation. Now in this chapter, the church is a new man. And we have in the first six verses the exhibition of the new man. And then verses 7 through 16, the inhibition of the new man. And then verses 17 to 32, the prohibition of the new man. Now, the new man is to exhibit himself down here. The members of the invisible church are to make themselves visible. They are to exhibit themselves. They are to be extroverts, if you please and get the Word of God out something. Now, we want to say that what follows here is restricted to those that are in Christ. The ones we're talking to now, at least that Paul's talking to in this epistle, and that the Spirit of God is talking, are saved people. Now, if you're listening to this today, and you're not a Christian, and there are quite a few folk that are not Christians, they've written to us, they say they listen. What God is saying here, he's not asking you to do until you become a child of his through faith in Christ, become a member of his body. Now, this is for those in whom we have redemption and they've heard the word of truth. Now, a dead man cannot be urged to walk, no matter how much insistence is made or how important it may be, because Paul is going to start off by saying, Therefore, I beg you, the prisoner of the Lord, that ye walk worthy of the calling with which you're called. Now, here is the thought. He said that we were dead in trespasses and sins. That's the condition of the laws. You just don't go out to the cemetery. You don't send the top sergeant out there for him to say, attention, you know, give a command, and then forward, march. I want you to understand something very clearly. If you say that, there won't be any marching. Oh, there won't be any marching, friends. Nobody's going to move. 
They've got to have life first. So he's not talking here to unsaved people. And I must say, oh, we're delighted to have you if you're not a Christian. But I want you to stay on the sidelines and listen, because this will tell you what God would ask of you if you're going to become a believer. And then when you look around you, you'll know whether the saints that you know are living as God wants them to live. This, by the way, is a very nice program to have in your hand to see whether the saints are. Now we have here that these instructions are given to the new man, not to the man dead in trespasses and sin. The world is saying today, and the religions are saying, do something and you'll be somebody. God says, be somebody, and then you can do something. Now we have it. Verse 1, therefore, I exhort you, I beg you, I, the prisoner of the Lord, that you walk worthily of the calling with which you were called. Now, therefore, is a connective. It is a transitional word, and it's in view of all that God has done for the believer that's been stated in these last three chapters. Now, in view of that, therefore, and Paul is a prisoner because of his position in Christ. The man seated in the heavens is also seated in prison. And he's there because he was a witness to the Gentiles. And he's telling them that now I'm a prisoner. I beseech you, a prisoner in the Lord. And beggar beseeches the same word that you have in Romans 12:1. This is not the command of Sinai with fire and thunder. It's the gentle wooing of love. I beseech you that you walk worthy of the high calling. I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, here, it's to walk worthily of the calling. Now, it's a call to walk on a plane that's commensurate with your position that's in Christ. Paul said to the Philippians in 127, only let your conversation, that is, your manner of life, your lifestyle, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. So ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. He says in Colossians, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And in First Thessalonians 2.10, your witnesses and God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Now he says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the gospel. Now, friends, people may not be telling you, but they're smelling you today. They are sniffing you to see whether you're genuine or not, whether you're a real child of God through faith in Christ. And the only way they can tell is by your walk. How do you walk through the world? And by the way, it's not so much how you walk as where you walk. You remember, John says, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with him. That's to walk in the light of the Word of God. How much time do you really spend in the Word of God? Don't you know that your children know how much time you spend in the Bible? Don't you know your neighbors know? Don't you know that the people in the church know how much time? And then we talk about fellowship with God. We have to walk in the light. And what about the man outside? I heard this story years ago. It was over in Memphis, Tennessee, that there was a man, one of these men, who gives out tracts, and it's fine to give out tracts. I think it's a ministry that requires a lot of prayer, 
and it ought to be done with a great deal of intelligence. And this man was handing out tracts, and he handed one to a man. man said to him, what is this? man says, it's a tract. man handed it back to him. He says, I can't read. He said, you say it's a tract? Well, he says, I can't read it, but I can watch your tracks, and I'll see what kind of tracks you make. May I say to you, that was the greatest sermon that that Christian ever had preached to him. Somebody's watching his tracks, not reading the tracks he's giving out. That's the thing that's important. Now, Paul says, on the basis of the fact I'm a prisoner, I'm in prison for you Gentiles, I beseech you now, not a command, but I beseech you, Now, he says here that with all lowliness, now he's going to tell us how to walk. We're to walk with all lowliness. And he mentions here about seven different things. I'm going to take them up. With all lowliness. Now, that means a mind brought low. You know, Paul practiced what he preached. It's the opposite of pride. And you'll find that in the life of the apostle Paul, He always exhibited a lowly mind. Oh, today, if our seminaries would get off of this binge of trying to make intellectual preachers and teach some of them to walk in lowliness of mind. And so many of them need to walk in lowliness of mind. I remember hearing the story years ago of the young preacher. He was a brilliant young fella in Scotland in a seminary. And he's so brilliant that when a very fashionable church in Edinburgh wanted a supply, why the seminary sent this fine young man. Well, I tell you, he was filled with pride because of the fact he was called to minister in this great church. And so he went there. Now, he'd never had any experience. He was brilliant sitting in class or in his study. But when he got up before that group of people, there was something he'd never known about before, and that's stage fright. And he forgot everything he ever knew. He memorized his sermon, but he forgot it. He forgot everything. And he just stumbled through. And a dear little Scotch lady there watched him as he came down. And he just really made a failure. And she went up to him, and she said, Young man, said, I was watching you this morning. And she said, I'd like to say to you, if you had gone up in that pulpit, like you came down out of that pulpit. Then you would have come down out of that pulpit like you went up in that pulpit. He went up with pride. He came down, I tell you, with lowliness and meekness. This man here certainly came down. Now, it's the opposite of pride. That's what it is. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. Paul said to the Philippians in 2-3, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. I think this is the flagship of all Christian virtues. It characterized our Lord. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'm meek and lowly in heart. Oh, the number of Christians today that are actually, they have a pride of race. They have a pride of place. They have a pride of face. And they actually have a pride of grace. They're proud. They're saved of grace even. Oh, we need to walk in lowliness of mind. And there's something else to be said about that business of lowliness. Oh, this business today of exalting ourselves, that's what Satan did, that awful thing. It's 
stories told about a group of people that went in to see Beethoven's home in Germany. And a guide was taking them through, and they came to the piano where he composed his music. And then after he finished his lecture, he said, if any of you'd like to come up and sit at the piano for a moment and just maybe hit a key or two. And so there was a mighty rush. Everyone tried to get up at first, and everyone tried to, except a gray-haired gentleman with long, flowing gray hair. And the guide finally, after they'd all been there, said to him, wouldn't you like to come up and sit down and try playing? Oh, he said, no. He said, I don't feel worthy. That man was Paderewski, by the way. Probably the only man there who was worthy to play the piano. But Beethoven is the one man that wouldn't play it. Oh, how many saints today rush in and do things, even in the church, have no gift for doing, but they do it. Nevertheless, we say we have difficulty finding people to do things. There's another trouble, too. That's the extreme of folk doing things they ought not to be doing. We need to walk in lowliness of mind. Now, meekness means mildness, but it doesn't mean weakness. It doesn't mean that you're Mr. Milktoast. The two men that are noted for being meek in the Old Testament was Moses, and the New Testament was the Lord Jesus. When you see Moses come down from the mount, break the Ten Commandments, and I tell you, when you see what he said to his brother Aaron and to the children of Israel, you call that meekness? God does. And was the Lord Jesus meek when he went in, drove the money changers out of the temple? He certainly was. Well, the world doesn't call that meekness. What is meekness? Meekness is willing to stand and do the will of God regardless of the cost. Bowing yourself to the will of God. That's meekness. And long-suffering means a long temper. This is a fruit of the Spirit. When we were in 1 Corinthians, I talked about that. Long-suffering means burning slowly over a long period of time. It means we shouldn't have a short fuse. And some of us, I'm afraid, do. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And then the fourth thing here for bearing one another in love. It means to hold oneself back in the spirit of love, for bearing one another, forgiving one another. And then the fifth that's mentioned here, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, the Lord Jesus prayed that we might be one. And the Spirit of God today has baptized us into one body. Now, we are to maintain that. We are to maintain that unity. We're not to make it. God never said for us to join the ecumenical movement because to begin with, you can't make a unity that only the Holy Spirit can make. We're to keep it. And that's the reason that you and I should be with all believers. That is, you and I should feel that we're all one body. We belong to one body. Now we have mentioned here seven unities that we are to keep. Will you notice them? He says, ye are one body, and there is one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all, through all, and in all. Now, one body is the body of believers. It began on the day of Pentecost to the parousia, to the rapture. One spirit is the Holy Spirit that baptizes us into the body. One hope of your calling, that one hope is the blessed hope. We have no other hope. One Lord refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, his lordship over believers. The fifth is one faith. That refers to the body of truth called the apostles' doctrine in Acts 2.42. 
and the six. One baptism refers to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, real baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Ritual baptism is by water. Then seven, one God and Father of all. That refers to God's fatherhood of believers. Since there's only one Father, He's not the Father of unbelievers. The unity of believers produces a sharp distinction between believers and non-believers. He's the Father of all who are His by regeneration. He's over all, through all, and in all. means that God is both imminent and He's transcendent. This is a marvelous section of the Word of God, as you can see. We'll have to leave off right there today. May God richly bless you. Have you ever considered your role in the local church? Well, next time, we'll learn about the gifts that God gives each of us when we're saved and then how they bless the body of Christ. Until then, to be in touch, you can visit us at ttb.org or call 1-800-65-BIBLE or find us on social media. Go with God today and in the power of His Spirit. Jesus Through the Bible is a five-year study of God's entire Word, and together we discover God's purposes in history and our lives, found only when we believe in Jesus Christ. Do you know Him yet?